You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We're about to wrap up season four, our summer season. And for this final episode of this particular season, uh, we wanted to reach back out to one of our longtime guests, one of our most popular guests and one of our most frequent guests, Dr. Scott Stevens, Director of Regional Operations for Ducks Unlimited Canada up in the prairies and boreal. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Pleased to be with you again, Mike. We've had a lot to discuss here over the summer. Uh, it's certainly an interesting year on a number of fronts, uh, whether we want to talk about the continuing effects of the coronavirus, uh, the developing drought across the prairies. That has really been, those have been the, the two things that have dominated a lot of our discussion, some of the ramifications of those developments uh, and and what they mean for data collection and harvest regulations, breeding habitat conditions. You know, that's that's what has uh, has been on the mind of a lot of us within the, within the waterfowl management field here over the past few months, and it continues to be and will be over the next few months and perhaps even into the next year. So we wanted to reconnect and and speak with someone that's you know spent the summer up there in the prairies. That is uh, the I guess that's sort of the epicenter where some of the concern is regarding the drought, certainly, and so. That's one of the things that we'll talk about here and, and get you to chime in on. But but also, I just wanted to, on a personal note, check in and see how things have been going for you this summer. I, I appreciate the chance to check in. Um, maybe what's noteworthy today is I was sitting here on a call earlier, and we got a little thunderstorm move through, and it rained pretty good here, which is the first 
dose of rain that we've probably had in over a month. So, you know, short news is remains dry. Um, you know, my, my grass in my front yard is dead and brown. Maybe, maybe it'll green up a little bit based on that dose of precipitation. But yeah, um, it, it remains dry across much of the Canadian prairies. So conditions have, have not improved probably since we visit last, visited last time. So with that dry weather and the yard turning brown, does that mean you have additional time to, uh, to do things other than mowing your grass? Uh, what about your garden? How are things going around the house there? How does that all affect, uh, affect what Scott Stevens does? Yeah, good, good question. So I'll admit, I don't mind when I don't have to spend time mowing the grass. Um, you know, mowing the grass is kind of time wasted in my book. Um, so the garden is going okay. Um, you know, I supplement it, it gets rain every morning at about, you know, 6.30 or 7 a.m. provided by me. So tomato plants and pepper plants are doing okay. But yeah, since I'm not cutting the grass this past weekend, I spent a day and a half fishing with a friend. And so in this part of the world, that means usually trying to catch some walleye. We were successful in that on Saturday. So I've got a few walleye fillets in the freezer that will become supper sometime this week. So that's what's been on tap here. I also know that you have been practicing your skills at uh, Hornet Wrestling. We'll we'll not uh, we'll not get too, <laughs> get too far into that conversation. Although that was, I do appreciate Stacy providing video evidence of what transpired there, and so I am glad that you made it out of that without uh, getting stung. Did I, I do have to ask? Did Ulu your lab get stung? Is that how we discovered the the presence of that hornet nest? Yeah, she seemed to, yeah, she seemed to discover the nest and, uh, yeah. And then, and then we figured that out, you know, and then I came up with a scheme to remove the nest and release it without harming the contents. And it went amazingly according to plan, much to my wife's sort of chagrin, I think. Yeah. And thanks to the, the able service of your Yeti bucket too. I, I have to have to add that, right? That's right. The, the, the Yeti bucket was definitely involved in the process. Um, so yeah. Multifunction, multifunction bucket. And thanks for having it handy there. Um, well, let's see, we are here mid July. This is like July 12th, I believe. And, and that means that we are not too far away from the, uh, the, the upcoming waterfowl hunting season. When does it start there for you, Scott? Is it early September? September one. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Not, not long at all. Let that be our transition here to talk about what we might expect, what you might expect, uh, there on your, your hunting exploits across the prairies this year. And then also kind of what it, uh, what we here South of the border should expect. We've had conversations with a number of people there, um, across the prairies to update us on drought conditions, uh, yourself, Mike Anderson, Mike Tomansky, uh, and Pat Kehoe. So we heard reports a few months ago and it was really, really dry. You've kind of already alluded to the fact that it continues to be dry. Have you been able to, um, to travel west into Saskatchewan or Alberta, any place, uh, or have you been talking with people over there? I know. And the reason I ask is because Pat had taken a, a trip across the prairies maybe a month or so ago, and he described that it was really dry, 
Uh, it's dry across the board, but he noted some recent precipitation in some of the western provinces there, and he was hopeful that maybe it would continue. Um, can Have you done any traveling or had conversations with people that would enable you to kind of give us an update on on how things may have changed since then? Yeah, I've, I've not done any traveling to the West, so I've, I've not seen many areas firsthand other than, you know, a trip that I took early, early in the spring when I went out to the Minnedosa pothole country here in Manitoba. Um, but I have talked to folks and yes, we have, we have definitely gotten some precipitation. Uh, Alberta has continued to get some precipitation and, and probably wetland conditions, if we break them down by the three prairie provinces, Alberta was probably in the best shape, um, you know, early on, they, they had some decent water in sort of central Alberta. Um, you know, they've continued to get some rain. Saskatchewan was spotty, you know, a little bit of water in, in some of the parkland areas, but dry in the prairies. Um, my assessment would be, I don't, I don't think the precipitation we've gotten has changed that much. Um, you know, at this point, you know, we've, we've not got really significant rains like six inches at a time or anything like that, which is what it would take to really change wetland conditions, um, at this point in the year. So we've got rain that will, you know, green the grass and help some crops that are out there, but not probably impacting wetland conditions much. So I, I guess the take home here is that what, what was to have happened with waterfowl production this year uh, has, has already happened. You know, we're not likely to see any, anything um, from here to the end of the summer that's going to materially change anything with regard to production across the prairies. I think the, asset, the, the consensus is that we should certainly expect some uh, low productivity, maybe even very low productivity out of the prairies this year. And, and, and a point worth making and emphasizing here is that when we, you know, the, the prairie drought gets a lot of our attention here this year, and rightly so. It's the first time since probably the mid-80s that we've had a drought of this severity and as widespread as it was. We've talked about precipitation, lessening some of the drought in Alberta and maybe a bit in Saskatchewan, but still at the time when it would be most critical for ducks arriving back on the prairies uh, or, you know, back in April and May, it was pretty doggone dry across all of the important prairie right. provinces and states in the here on the, on the U.S. side. And so that sort of set the table in terms of what to expect for this production year. And so when we think about a prairie drought, I mean, that's the area that's going to drive the, the, the highs and lows, the, the variation in, product, in production and, and waterfowl population change, uh, at least in the mid-continent. And, and so the, the point to make here is that the effects of a drought across the prairie are mainly going to be felt in the Mississippi and Central Flyway. We can, you know, the, as we talk about the Atlantic Flyway, a lot of the birds over there are going to be supported by breeding regions in, in other areas. And the same thing for the Pacific Flyway. But now there's drought forming in the Pacific Flyway, and that sort of takes on a different picture in itself. And I know that's going to continue to be some of our conversations uh, in the fall. But is that kind of the message, Scott, that with regard to a prairie drought, you know, let's not think about it as uh, having overall... I mean, it's not the end all for waterfowl populations and hunter expectations uh, across North America, right? Is it appropriate to kind of compartmentalize this and think about it in that way? Yeah, I think so. It's it's not the end of the world. People will 
still definitely see ducks. Um, you know, if, if we have a year where we have low production or even no production, you know, there, there will still be ducks that fly South. So I, I think that's, that's a good perspective. Um, you know, I, I think the message that we were trying to deliver is, you know, now is the time of the year when, you know, the bumps in the population usually happen with, with the breeding season and, there probably won't be much of a bump this year. You know, there'll be a few young birds, not many. Um, and, and that sort of has implications for, you know, success of folks who are looking to harvest birds, especially at more Southern latitudes. You know, I think better seasons tend to happen when we have really good production, lots of young, lots of young birds in the fall flight, you know, young birds may be a pretty high proportion of the total number of birds that will not be the case this year. So, you know, there will still be ducks out there. They will just largely be adult birds who have sort of been through a migration before have played the game before, and they will be more difficult to fool into coming into your decoys. The other point to make here, Scott, is, is that the effects of a prairie drought are going to be felt most strongly for a subset of, of ducks in North America. There are some that are tied to tied much more closely every year. Uh, even during, even during drought, prairie drought years, there are some species that just have a stronger affinity for breeding in areas outside the prairies. So run through some of those species that, um, that for which this might uh, we, we might see less impacts for, uh, of a prairie drought. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So yes, there are a number of species who their core breeding range would fall outside of the prairie pottle region. So some good examples would be green wing teal, uh, American widgeon, you know, a lot of them breed in the boreal or, or in Alaska, scop, scop, and some of the other, uh, scoters. I don't know how many people pursue scoters. Some do in certain, certain areas, but certainly scop as well. Yeah. So those are the ones that come to mind, you know, scop are definitely a boreal centered species. Um, many of the sea ducks, like you mentioned, scoters and merganser specialists are probably, you know, not likely to see much of an effect from a prairie drought, right? That's, that's right. Yeah. And, and actually when I, when I was out fishing, we, we saw a few broods of mergansers on the lakes I was on. So it's like, yep, there are, there are still mergansers out there. If, if you have an, a special affinity for them, you're, you're probably okay. But yeah, so the, the big species that we would expect to be impacted would be blue-winged teal, mallards, gadwall, pintails, northern shovelers. Those are sort of the big prairie breeding species. And then a couple of the diving ducks too, camasbacks and redheads. Um, those are the species that we would expect to be most impacted by drought in the prairies. Yeah. Ringneck duck is one that we left off the list. They're going to be mostly tied to the boreal forest as well. And that's a, that's a species that actually, that has actually by all accounts been on the increase, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know they're an important species for some of the folks in Southern latitudes, especially places like Florida has, you know, some traditions for ringneck ducks. So Yeah. So all hope is not lost. You know, there will, even, even of the impacted species, there will still be some of those out there. But yeah, the, you know, for those prairie dabblers and the two prairie divers, those will be the ones where, yep, you'll still see some birds, probably not many young birds and populations may be lower than we've been used to over, 
over the past couple of decades. Now, Scott, you mentioned blue winged teal as a prairie nesting species that uh, that is certainly going to feel the effects of this drought. There are certain uh, there are a couple of these species that are really closely tied to the prairie. Gadwall and blue winged teal are, are probably at the top of that list. You know, pintails. You can even say, hey, there's a good chunk of that population that'll go north into Alaska or that does every year go north into Alaska, but. Blue-winged teal right. and gadwall are, are strongly associated with the prairie. So those might be uh, a, a species that we would look to, um, you know, for some more immediate uh, effects. Although I will re- recall here that Zemanski, I think, report, Mike Zemanski reported some uh, rather unusually high gadwall numbers in North Dakota, if I remember correctly. Now, there are mm-hmm. later later nesting species among the dabblers. So maybe there's something going on there as well. But, but getting back to the blue-winged teal, I know that you are a blue-winged teal aficionado, hunting aficionado. And so that's yep. going to be the species that you are really targeting here at the 1st of September. How are you preparing yourself, your mindset going into this hunting season? And, and I asked this question because um, you know, maybe it maybe it will help some of the hunters listening to this think about it also how they might uh, prepare themselves uh, for what what they could encounter. Yeah, good question. They they are one of my favorite species, and you know, a species that I focus on early here. So, yeah, I've been thinking about that. One of the traditional areas that I go has some small pothole wetlands that there's usually production of blue wings on. Probably won't be much of that, but there's also some larger wetlands associated with with some bigger water, a lake system that has some marshes around it that I suspect there will still be water there. That area tends to stage migrating birds that are coming through. Um, you know, in a typical year, there are usually more males there. They're kind of ahead of the migration of the rest of the birds because they've molted and are ready to move south first. So you know, I would expect to still find male blue wings and and maybe a few more female blue wings because they may have not had as strong a nesting nesting effort and went went off to molt on their own too. So, yeah. So you know, I will definitely be checking conditions. Um, you know, from my perspective, hunting blue wings is all about finding shallow water that has the food they're looking for. And with these kind of drought conditions, that changes and shifts and move around, moves around the landscape. But I suspect I'll still be able to find some, some spots with shallow water that will attract the blue wings that we have. I would imagine that every year as you're harvesting uh, blue wings, you're checking the, uh, the age and sex of the bird <clears throat> based on those wing characteristics. And I, yep. I certainly imagine you're going to be doing so this year. And you're going to be looking for a couple of things, one of which you, you've already kind of referenced is the male-female kind of ratio. Traditionally, we, uh, those males are going to be some of the first to go south. If, you, if in your harvest you start seeing, uh, you start out with sort of an equal percentage or, or higher than normal percentage of females in the bag. Is it, are, are you going to be tempted to interpret that as you, as I think you kind of intimated there, where maybe that's an indication of, of a lower nesting effort on the, on the part of blue wings? Yeah, I would expect that's the case. I mean, I would expect that's probably going to be the case for, you know, all of those dabbling ducks that we talked about, mallards, pintails, shovelers, gadwall, you know, the conditions were just not great for them to have a strong nesting effort. Um, So, you know, they maybe tried to nest once if they found adequate conditions and then 
they'll probably call it good and say, okay, time to molt, no use, no use investing a bunch of time and energy, you know, during conditions which are less than ideal and prospects for pulling off a successful brood are not very good. So, so yeah, I mean, birds are making decisions like that. We, we call it life history trade-offs, but they're making those kind of decisions, you know, as they assess conditions and decide where they invest their time and energy. And so we would, we would expect females to have not put a great effort into reproduction and kind of opted to, to more move to molting and getting ready for migration and trying to survive. And, you know, probably the implications are that summer survival rate um, may be higher because, you know, females are most at risk when they're on the nest and probably they spent less time on nests this year. So that's the one silver lining to poor conditions is female survival in the You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. Summer tends to be higher. We'll move on here in our conversation, Scott, but I do look forward to connecting with you in early September. That's when we will resume our next uh, season of the Ducks Unlimited podcast and checking on conditions or what you're seeing in terms of number of birds and, and the composition of the birds that you're harvesting or that you're seeing will be will be another sort of checkpoint. I, at this At this juncture, I think we've We've covered it pretty well in, in trying to prepare people for what to expect out of the, uh, at least out of the mid-continent this year in terms of low production out of the prairies and perhaps some uh, continued stable production out of the boreal forest. But yeah, we'll continue on into the fall with some follow-up conversations actually. Um, yeah, do some some touch points there on what it is that, that you're seeing. I, I wanted to move on now for a quick discussion about an issue or sort of a question that was raised by one of our listeners here recently, I was contacted by someone who had heard one of our prior 
discussions, prior episodes related to the drought, and they made the uh, the interesting uh, inquiry about uh, essentially asking why we, uh, meaning Ducks Unlimited and the conservation uh, sort of community, don't invest more into intensive management of of breeding habitats of breeding um, yeah breeding habitats uh, I think mainly the the question was in regard to wetlands the idea being that hey when we look at habitats to support migrating and wintering waterfowl we spend a lot of resources and time on on uh, managing the vegetation communities and then providing water on those vegetation communities in those wetlands to to provide the the habitat at times and places when waterfowl migrating and wintering waterfowl need them. And so the question is, why don't we do the same for breeding waterfowl? We know they require wetlands and we know a lot about the type of wetlands they require. And so I replied and said, you know, that's actually a really good question uh, and it relates to some of the very early thinking of, of our pioneering waterfowl biologists and waterfowl managers where, and, and even Ducks Unlimited, when we thought about some of our early conservation project, projects, I, I think uh, I think we actually attempted some of that stuff. So uh, talk about that a little bit, if you could, Scott, in, in the way we originally thought about how we might, I guess you could even say, uh, drought-proof the prairies to ensure that the effect of drought is minimized, but then what we realized in terms of the reality of the effectiveness of those type of approaches. Yeah, no, it, it is a good question. And, you know, especially if, if the context that most folks have is living in a, in a migration or wintering area, you would think, well, yeah, like we manage the wetlands here. We put water on when we need it and when it's not supplied by nature, why don't we do that on breeding areas? So, so I think it is a good question. Um, the short one word answer to that, why we're not able to do that would be territoriality. So when the birds are on breeding areas, they're behaving territorially and they won't tolerate you know, a pair of the same species on a given wetland. So, you know, that means they're spaced out, they're spread out, you know, with a pair of each species on each of the small wetlands scattered around the landscape. And, you know, during the non-breeding period, that territoriality goes away and the birds congregate and you can pack, you know, thousands or tens of thousands birds birds into small spaces when you provide the right conditions and food. So it's really that, you know, that behavioral characteristics that changes when they get to the breeding season and they're defending territory and resources for the female to take advantage of that isn't present during the rest of the year. So, so, you know, a logical question, but, but that's the simple answer is the birds just won't tolerate being packed in together during the breeding season. So, you know, if we needed to pump water, say, into a hundred wetlands across, you know, a property that we own, it's it's just not feasible or cost effective to do that. Um, and so the scale of impact or the number of birds that you can impact is is pretty reduced by just those biological characteristics that the birds have. Now, Scott, weren't some of DU's earliest and maybe the very first as the best example uh, conservation projects kind of designed to um, to ensure some of these big wetlands don't go dry? Big grass, big grass marsh is the, the first DU project. That's uh, the one that I'm kind of thinking of maybe using as an example. Is my memory correct on that? And that, you know, that's we were thinking let's 
figure out a way to keep some of these big wetlands from going dry, but then we learned that maybe it's not those big wetlands that are most important for breeding waterfowl. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's, it's more efficient, I guess, to, you know, put those, put the water control managing ability on bigger wetlands. You know, you, you put in a, a levee system or a water control structure and you can backwater up and, you know, you can do that over large wetland areas. And, and we did a bunch of those investments early on. There are a whole series of projects like Big Grass Marsh. There are a whole number of them scattered across Saskatchewan and Alberta and, and Manitoba that were big wetland projects like that. They were, they did provide some of the only habitat to remain during drought periods like we're having now. But it turns out that because of that territoriality issue, they're just not, you, you still can't pack a bunch of birds into those areas to breed, even though there's a lot of water there. So, um, you know, they, they do provide some habitat and some breeding will happen around those, but, you know, it, it just wasn't, wasn't something that really worked at scale. And, and we recognized that and said, well, you know, it's important to have those staging marshes, but that's not really the limiting factor that we have for birds. So, you know, the focus shifted to protecting and restoring those small wetland basins that, you know, may only be, you know, half an acre or, you know, you could, you could throw a rock across many of these wetlands and hit the other side. They're small. Um, so those are the ones that we focus on now, but yeah, we, there was a time in our history when we thought about drought proofing the prairies, we just came to the conclusion that that was not a real feasible strategy and not one that was having the desired outcomes. And so, you know, a while ago we moved away from that approach. Scott, I'm going to ask you a question that I, that I have gotten occasionally. I want to see how you answered. I suspect it's similar to what I would say, but it relates to what it is that you were just talking about where we're, we're seeing a drought right now or whether populations are really high or whether populations are really low. Um, those types of sort of unusual circumstances oftentimes prompt questions from people like, oh, well, y'all must be really busy right now. What are y'all doing differently to address this particular current concern? And the fact of the modern right now, we're, we'd be talking about the drought. Do you, do you have anybody that has asked you that? Like, oh, y'all must be kind of scrambling given the drought that's unfolding. And, and so what do you, res how do you respond to that? I guess the general nature of the question would be, do the type of decisions and conservation actions that we take right now differ uh, because we're going through a, a, a drought at the moment? Yeah, I, I would say not really. Um, you know, we would view the projects that we'd be targeting the same now as we would if it was super wet on the prairies, um, you know, because we have tools that tell us, you know, for any tract of land that we're looking at or talking with a producer about, you know, restoring or, or just protecting, you know, we're able to see the number of wetland basins on that. We have historic imagery that we can see when they're full and how many acres there are. And, you know, our tools point us to, to targeting those kind of areas. So, you know, it, it's not like our targeting changes with the environmental conditions, if it's dry or if it's wet, we're focused on those areas that, when we have the right environmental conditions, they will provide really good habitat. You know, lots of wetland basins, ideally lots of grassland cover across the whole, you know, upland portions of, of the habitat there. Um, 
that's what we're focusing on. So, you know, the work on that continues, even if those basins happen to be dry and they may not be producing waterfowl this year. You know, many of the investments that we make are, are sort of perpetual investments where we purchase a conservation easement or buy a property and do restorations and sell it back onto the market with an easement attached. So we know that habitat will be there sort of forever. And, you know, so we can, we can think about those investments in the longer term and, you know, we're not just targeting which areas have wetlands this year. We know that areas that have high wetland density, those are going to be good when we do have water and when things are dry, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of compensate for, for those broad scale environmental conditions. One thing that I'll add to that, that I, that I try to remember to incorporate in, in, you know, my response to a question of that nature is to say that there are, there are a couple of reasons, two big reasons why a wetland or wetlands can, uh, wetland basin can go dry. One is environmental variation, environmental change, such as a drought, lack of precipitation over an extended period of time. And that causes a wetland basin to go dry. And we've talked ad nauseum here on previous podcasts about, and will in the future as well, about the value of that wet dry cycle for rejuvenating the productivity of wetlands. The other thing that can cause a wetland basin to go dry is some type of drainage of that wetland. Right. And, and the, the long-term effects of those two causes of a dry wetland basin uh, are vastly different. We're not so concerned about the short-term environmental environmentally driven drying of a wetland right. because it's part of the cycle and it's part of the necessary rejuvenation of that wetland. What we're, we are really concerned about and what our conservation actions are designed to combat is that permanent drying through some type of drainage activity. That's, that's really where we focus. Is that, is that a good way of putting it? Yeah, no, that's exactly accurate. You know, if it's drained, it, it doesn't matter how much precipitation we have, you know, that basin's not going to not going to hold water, not going to provide the biodiversity benefits and all the other benefits like flood storage and carbon sequestration and removing nutrients. None of those things happen when it's drained. So that is the focus is, you know, maintaining the, the integrity of the wetland basin itself and trying, trying to provide the associated upland cover. And then we kind of let the environmental conditions fluctuate as they may. And you know, duck populations have been able to respond to those fluctuating environmental conditions for a long time. And we're, we remain confident that if we maintain that habitat base, that ability to respond to those conditions will, will continue into the future. We'll move on here in the conversation. And I'll just say that we'll continue to keep an eye on precipitation as it unfolds here over the remaining months of this year and into next year, because that's right now looking forward is when we start to think about how wetland conditions may develop for the breeding season of next year. Uh, we've talked in previously with you, Scott, about the different pieces of the equation or of the formula that have to be in place in order to produce abundant wetlands in the spring to benefit breeding waterfowl. And now is the time that we, uh, we, we start to, to think about, uh, we, we start to think about that. So we'll stay in touch with you on those, on those issues and, and, you know, update people as, as those situations develop. I, I guess the, the good news is that 
we've we've had wetlands, a large percentage of the wetlands in the prairies go through this drying phase this summer. And as I spoke with Pat Kehoe, he said, I, asked, I think I asked the question, have they been dry long enough? And I think the answer at this point is, yeah, if you get one good drying, even over the course of a summer, if we get water on them next year, that's, uh, that's going to be uh, enough. To, or the amount of drying that we've seen this this summer is going to be enough to rejuvenate them once we get precipitation, get rainfall back uh, back in those basins. So, right. Uh, uh, before we let you go, uh, again, we're here mid July, July twelfth. I wanted to check in with you, see if you could give us an update on the border. I th- know th- it feels like things are changing daily or weekly with regard to. I, I know that monthly is sort of the um, the the mile post, there's like a, a date every month where there's a new announcement made, but give us an understanding of where things are with the border. And uh, if you're so bold, kind of handicap for us, what we might expect in terms of the border uh, later this year. So the, the border closure association associated with the COVID pandemic here in Canada has really been driven by, you know, our progress on vaccination rates here in Canada. We were we were a bit behind getting vaccination started. Supply was pretty low. We don't have any domestic production. So we were kind of waiting on vaccine to come from Europe. And some some of the more recent shipments came from the U.S. after you guys were kind of caught up and everybody who wanted vaccine had had a chance to get it. So that has improved. You know, we've thought that that's been a precursor to the border opening. And I know um, here across Canada, I think we're above 75% of people having one dose of vaccine. And I know at least here in Manitoba, we were, we were pushing 50% of, of the population having two doses. So that number was increasing. Um, you know, we're probably getting to the point where anyone who, who is interested in vaccine will, will have access to it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll probably reach the point where supply exceeds demand. Um, so that's positive. There, there have started to have been some discussions about border reopening. For example, they had relaxed restrictions for Canadian citizens and permanent residents who had left the country and were coming back. If you're fully vaccinated now, you can forego the two-week quarantine that was required if you could come back with a negative test in hand and then you take a test at the border. And if that test is negative, then basically you don't have to sequester yourself away for two weeks once you get back. So my guess is that if we continue to see vaccinations roll out here, maybe they may even make an announcement that the date that they renew that border closure or or not is around the 21st. So the current one, I think, expires July 21st. They may make some announcements about, you know, the what's coming on that here as we get close to the one in July. I, I think, you know, for folks interested in coming up in the fall and hunting, I think the, the odds are pretty good that the border will be open for fully vaccinated folks by sometime in September. You know, I, I won't speculate as to whether, you know, whether that will be, you know, yep, come September 1, you'll be able to come in. Um, but I, I would, and I would give even, even better odds that, you know, for sure by October, I, I think folks will likely be able to, to enter Canada for, 
you know, what had been deemed non-essential things like, like tourism and, and hunting. So, you know, probably many of us would, would characterize those activities as essential. Um, but mm. in the context of the pandemic, they were classified as non-essential. So I, I think it looks pretty good right now that, you know, that the border will be opening, you know, could, could even happen in August. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that that's, that's going to happen sometime here in the next month or two. One of the things I've heard, Scott, regardless of when the date is, is that we should expect uh, some type of a proof of vaccination to be a, a criterion for entry. Is, is that what you're hearing or is that, and I don't know how much they're even sharing, but obviously I know there's a lot of scuttlebutt that's, that's occurring pretty much everywhere. Are you hearing the same thing that that would be a reasonable expectation that even once it is open, uh, there would be some, uh, some criterion for showing proof of vaccination to enter Canada? Yes, I, I think that's that definitely will be the case. And, and probably a good measure of that is just what they have in place right now that they've already changed for Canadian citizens and permanent residents. So, so right now, if you can provide documentation of being fully vaccinated, you know, just what I described earlier, you show up at the border with a negative test, you take one right there. And then if that one is negative, um, you're good to go. You don't have to quarantine. So, you know, exactly what that proof of vaccination looks like, you know, for folks in the U S I suspect that's just the, the vaccination card, the CDC gave you, um, and had your two doses on it. I, I suspect that'll suffice. I know here in Manitoba, we got, uh, you know, if you've been fully vaccinated, you were able to get a QR code, sort of an electronic, uh, signature that, you know, that documents your vaccination, those, those will definitely qualify. But yeah, I, I think that's reasonable to assume, you know, that that's the requirement they've instituted for Canadian citizens. Um, so any visitors that were coming in will probably need to meet that same requirement once the borders open. Well, we continue to live in an interesting time, don't we? Yeah, that's right. Scott, I appreciate you being willing to share with us uh, sort of an update on on that front. I know it's of interest to a lot of people. And yeah, we'll continue to check back in. And like I said a little while ago, you will be one of our first um, one of our first guests once we get back into season five, uh, starting in September. We want to check in and see how your hunting uh, exploits are, are going and what you're seeing in terms of um, yeah, your the, the composition of your bag as you're out pursuing blue wings. So any other parting words from you, Scott? Appreciate all your help over the summer, but anything uh, anything else to add? No, I don't think so. I, I look forward to fall arriving and being able to report on, you know, the, the exploits out there in the field and seeing birds again over decoys. So I am definitely counting days till that happens and uh, happy to collect a little data along the way to report back on. I'm, I'm sure you are. We appreciate you being willing to do so. Uh, Scott, thanks for your time today. Look forward to talking with you again in the future. You bet. Thanks, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Scott Stevens with Ducks Unlimited Canada. We appreciate his continued engagement with us here on the Ducks Unlimited podcast and giving us a, a view of the way things are unfolding up on the prairies and look forward to connecting with him again as we get into the, the fall season of the Ducks Unlimited podcast. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us. And we thank you for your support of Wetlands Conservation. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.